Welcome to episode 170 of the Introvert Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm Beth Bilo, and I am really looking forward to spending this time with you. Thank you so much for joining me and choosing to spend this time with me. When people ask me about my background, I sometimes feel self-conscious that it's not what they're going to expect to hear. There's no typical path to becoming a coach. It's more that we have certain strengths in common. For instance, coaches tend to be good listeners, have lots of curiosity, and are interested in personal growth and potential. We also have a love of supporting others on their journey. But other than that, you'll find coaches come from a wide range of educational and professional backgrounds. Even knowing that, I felt my path was, well, kind of weird. <laughs> I started out as a musician, and I have a bachelor's and master's in music performance. Then I transitioned to arts administration and got a master's in that. I spent about 12 years in nonprofit management before discovering that I was meant to be a coach, which I've been now for 10 years. It's conversations like the one in this episode that remind me that while my path was weird, it was valuable. It's a reminder that all of our past experiences, whether they are seemingly related or not, provide information that supports our current and future success. There are many lessons to be learned from the arts and music that absolutely apply to entrepreneurship. And that's one reason why when today's guest reached out to me, I was eager to speak with him. As you listen, you'll hear him refer to different musicians and composers that he's worked with. You don't have to be familiar with his references to get the point of his message. I took away numerous aha moments from the conversation, and I expect you will too. Craig Shepard is a composer and trombonist, and he makes music related to stillness. Growing up in Connecticut, he would go for long walks in the middle of snowy nights, stopping to listen to the sheen of millions of snowflakes hitting the ground. Recent projects include On Foot Brooklyn, a 91-day, 780-mile walking project in New York, and Trumpet City, a mass outdoor installation that has been realized in Seattle, New York City, and in Zurich and Bern, Switzerland. He directs the Music for Contemplation concert series and organizes Creating Music Together workshops and retreats. Craig was generous enough to allow me to use some of his music in this episode, so except for my intro and exit podcast theme music, any other music that you hear or tonalities, um, you know, any piece of the sonic landscape that you hear is his, like what you're probably hearing right now underneath this introduction. You'll find Craig's information, as well as links to information on how to connect with him and his Introvert Island book selections, on the episode webpage at theintrovertentrepreneur.com slash podcast. Hi, Craig. Welcome to the Introvert Entrepreneur Podcast. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the conversation. Hi, welcome. Well, what is making you smile today? I woke up this morning and my cat was waiting outside the bedroom door. <laughs> as opposed to like pawing at your face or <laughs> exactly we've yeah. been training him to not disturb us in our sleep and finally he is agreed to let us sleep excellent that is a good day and a very good reason to smile <laughs> yeah well i'd love to give some folks uh context before we begin our conversation about where you fall on the introvert extrovert spectrum and how has that awareness influenced your path I always thought I was an extrovert until I realized that I was actually faking it. And then mm. I, mm -hmm. uh, once I accepted that I had a little bit of social anxiety every time I talked to people, especially in an unstructured situation, yeah. 
then I gave myself permission to orient. So in a mixer or a networking event or a large party, I'll just go and stand in the middle of the room for about five minutes and kind of scan my body, look around, make sure I uh, listen to all the sounds that are around me. And once I can do that, I'm, I'm pretty okay. And then mm-hmm. I found that actually making contact, and it could just be eye contact, but really connecting with another person allows me to relax and uh, have a pretty good time. Yeah. As a composer, I used to think that like I have Beethoven, I had to sit and pound on the piano alone for hours and hours. <laughs> and just accepting that I actually, it's, it's more like a really good personal grooming. I need about four to eight hours every week alone time in my studio. Mm-hmm. That's just basic hygiene for me. I need time alone. And once I have it, I can then go back and be with other people. Yeah, it's so important to find that ratio of of what you need in terms of downtime, alone time, work time that is yours without other people and how you can balance that with all of the other social stuff that is pretty much part and parcel of being a, a professional in today's world. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the strange thing about it is musically, even though I do enjoy and, and value and, and need the time alone, I've also found recently I can't really do anything alone. That might sound contradictory. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we began putting a lot more energy into nurturing communities and different groups yeah. in order to get through the tough parts of any musical project. Yeah. I'm wondering if you experienced something similar to, I, I, I can't remember the artist's name, but... Um, she lives, you know, somewhat isolated, I suppose, at like an upper New York state or something. And um, she talks about how she, you know, she relishes and gets a lot of work done when she's by herself. But at some point, sort of the well becomes dry and she needs to go into the city. She needs the stimulation and the interaction and the inspiration that comes from that environment so that she has something to take back and work with when she has that solitude. Yeah, and there's a fair amount of just connection and energy mm-hmm. when you're really connected with a group yeah. that can be sustaining. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I want to um, also ground for our listeners, um, because I don't think I've, I've heard anybody suggest this before, but it makes complete sense what you said in the beginning about, you know, walking into a room and sort of standing in the middle and taking the temperature of the, of the space, you know, reading the energy of it, reading your own energy. It's like you're calibrating to the room. And just even thinking about that releases some of my own anxiety about walking into a space like the possibility of doing that. And I could see that as being a very powerful ritual when you know you're going into those kinds of situations. So I appreciate that you shared that piece of of what you've learned about yourself. Yeah. Well, as we heard in the intro, you're a trombonist in addition to being a composer, and your focus is on music related to stillness. And I have to admit, being a musician myself, I, you know, when I think of trombone, I don't necessarily also think of stillness. <laughs> they don't go together in my mind. So I'm curious about, you know, how did you come to your fascination with stillness and contemplation and what its intersection is with music? Oh, thanks. And that's a good question. And I do actually have had that uh, response a couple of times. <laughs> the earliest example was through the Vonderweiser group, I studied composition at Northwestern University with Michael Bizarro. Mm-hmm. And among many other fantastic musicians, he introduced me to the improviser Rado Malfatti, who's a trombonist. And he has a stellar CD from the 90s, which is him making hardly perceptible breath noises on the trombone. Mm-hmm. 
And when I first heard that, it was just so contradictory to what I'd expected the trombone to be. As an orchestra musician, you're one of the main roles of the brass section is to be loud. Yes. And it comes from military band tradition and uh, just the volume of the instrument. And we're trained as trombonists to be able to project to the back of the hall, to be able to mm-hmm. play to the bleachers when we're in the marching band. So that was a real big change. There was another trumpet player, Joe McPhee, who was really instrumental. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> he, um, I heard him in a, a bar in a loud improvised music festival, and he played this very delicate solo trumpet set. Uh, opened a lot of doors for me of what could could be possible on the trombone. So the interaction with the Vondelweiser group, which has a, a lot to do with mindfulness and paying attention and these very delicate, quiet moments, mm-hmm. was sort of the first um, prong. The other prong was I when I lived in Zurich in the first part of the 2000s, I got a lot of gigs playing masses. Mm-hmm. So there'd be a, in a church with a choir. Mm-hmm. And in the Renaissance music, in the Middle Ages, the trombone was um, in the program, programmatic music, the voice of the priest or of God. And the trombone gets to thank Martin Luther for mistranslating the term trumpet in the Bible to trombone. (laughs) So it was the instrument that announced the end of the world. I see. Wow. (laughs) No no pressure there. (laughs) Well, there's this famous Mozart solo, the tuba murum. Yes. uh, And that is played by the trombone. And I got to play that a couple of times. And it's an invitation to attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, hey, mm-hmm. wake up, people, the end of the world is nigh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there's this wonderful line from T.S. Eliot where he says, then, the end is every moment. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there, is, there is something in there. Uh, and yeah. so when I got into, you know, you can go deeper into that with some of the sacred music, and I found my, my way to some of the Trappist monks and would go to Trappist monasteries. Mm-hmm. So there's this invitation from the Trappists to silence and to contemplation, and they distinguish then between meditation and contemplation, and that distinction has really uh, been a fruitful one for me. Uh, there's a composer, Jörg Frey, a Swiss composer, who also talks about uh, music being an invitation to contemplation that you can structure as opposed to entertainment or something that brings you into a different world. Mm-hmm. It can be a contribution to an atmosphere that brings you to the present moment. Yeah. So with a series, Music for Contemplation in Brooklyn, we got started with that. We did a concert with Andrew Christopher Smith, uh, and he, we did, it was string quartet and four trombones. And among others, we had a piece by Tyler Wilcox on that. And people from the parish came to the concert, and they were doing Praying praying the Rosary. So they came into the space and they found the music as a really good way to keep people from talking in the church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, good point. um, So somehow when people realized that there was music going on, they realized, oh, wait a minute, I shouldn't be talking. And so it created this invitation to be quiet and to stillness, which was set apart from even just going to a mass early and sitting there. So we had a very strong feedback from the the parishioners that, hey, this is really great. We really want this. And they were able to use that as um, 
support for their devotion. And then the experimental community really liked the atmosphere that mm-hmm. the church had. So we found a, a really good place where we could serve both communities. Nice, nice. And do you work intentional contemplation into your own life? Yeah, my day begins at 6.30. Uh, I call a friend of mine and we both sit for a half an hour. Hmm. And it's just a silent sitting, a simple relaxation exercise. And then we call each other again after the 30 minutes. Nice. And then I've got another friend who regularly asks me, a little bit like you did, like what makes you smile today? She, We call it finding the glory. Oh, nice. So just little moments of beauty. It could be an interaction with a friend. It could be a particularly beautiful sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, this morning there was this fabulous golden light right at 6 a.m., and me and the cat went over to the window and we were looking out the window and it was this bronze the, coming through the clouds had something to do with the sunrise and it only lasted a couple of minutes and then the storm came and we had this beautiful rainstorm. Mm. So just stopping and noticing those things when they happen because they're kind of happening all the time, Yeah. but yeah. I'm not always there for it. But just having someone ask for regular reports. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Accountability? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The account of, a little bit of the accountability. And in this case, giving a report or an account or, I mean, in some traditions, they call it bearing witness. Just that, yes. that yeah. practice of doing that. When I do that, those moments tend to show up more, more frequently. Absolutely. Gosh. Yeah, I'm, I'm taken with that idea and that um, you're reminding us that paying attention and mindfulness is a practice. And, and I'm guessing that the more you do it, the more it becomes uh, part of you. Like you said, those moments are passing all the time and whether or not we're present for them might depend a little bit on how much we decide we want to be present for them and how much we set that intention and make a practice of being present. Yeah. And there are, especially as a musician, there are different uh, styles of paying attention. Mm-hmm. So right now I'm going through an intensive study course with a trumpet student, uh, Doug Ferrand, and we are memorizing Hildegard von Bingen chants. Mm-hmm. So we first we begin by memorizing the words, and then we learn by rote the chants from a um, sequentia CD. And what you find that is when you internalize the, the sound, uh, you're, you're taking it in from outside, you memorize it, and you can play it from memory. That style of attention then supports the musician as a composer to pay attention to sounds that have never existed before. Yeah. And it's, um, it, they're not the same uh, capacity, but they're they're very similar. And being able to direct the attention in that way, to go in and say, well, what am I hearing inside? They're very close to hearing, okay, so what is the sequential of what Heather Knudsen singing versus, okay, wait a minute, am I hearing something slightly different from that? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And then that switch to being able to hear inside and that way is a for most people, if they can memorize something or play something back from, or uh, repeat something from memory, if they then can direct their attention to sort of what else might you be hearing, then a lot of people find that they can also direct the attention that way. Yeah, nice. And that also is a, a practice as a composer to practice listening in. Well, what is that sound inside? What does resonate with me? Um, 
and knowing that and developing that over time is a very valuable skill. Yeah. And you used one of my favorite words, which is resonance in that, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, I, I suppose, you know, a musical term, but it, it applies anytime you're seeking or you're um, curious or you're looking or you're just being, being able to pay attention to where there's resonance and where there's dissonance and being able to kind of know what to do with that and be able to notice it and act on it in some way is, is a really um, powerful awareness that I think introverts as they have that internal orientation and propensity for reflection, um, if they really can tune in to that resonance and dissonance, then they're tapping into a really powerful reservoir of information. Yes, absolutely. Well, I, I want to hear a little bit about another project that you have that intrigued me called On Foot Brooklyn. Uh, can you give us a short description of that and, and specifically what you learned from that experience? On Foot Brooklyn was a 13-week, 91-day walking project where I walked everywhere I went in New York City. Mm-hmm. So uh, no cabs, no bicycles, no subways. And every week, I would I wrote a new piece, and every Sunday, I led a silent cell phone-free walk throughout Brooklyn, performed the piece in the middle, and then walked back. Mm-hmm. So walks were anywhere from 90 minutes to 12 hours was the longest. Wow. And I had perfect strangers and old friends accompany me on the silent walks and were able to perform on the trumpet in public spaces all over Brooklyn. Nice. And what did you take away from all of that? The strongest thing was just knowing that whatever situation I'm in, mm-hmm. There are things that I can do in order to make the work that needs to be done. So in this case, I was having a hard time finding time to compose. And just by walking every day, I I ended up having, you know, I I work really well. Sounds and ideas tend to come to me when I'm in motion. Yeah. And uh, I'm certainly not the first musician or artist to to find that out. Hamish Fulton and Richard Long and certainly uh, Wordsworth or Robert Balser, certainly pretty strong predecessors in that respect. But what I really learned then was there really is a way. It's not a matter of if I can do what needs to be done. It's a matter of how. Mm -hmm. And once I direct my attention to, well, this is what I'm burning to be done. How can I do it? And in that case, I found three hours of usable composing time every day mm. and then more time on Saturdays. And I also found that when I began to work, that the work ended up taking on its own course. So it ended up becoming easier to complete pieces. Yeah. Uh, the other one, and this was a real, I mean, I kind of knew this already from my first walking project across Switzerland in 2005. But that deadlines really are a friend. <laughs> yes. And at a certain point, you know, I had to, you know, you just can't doubt anymore. It has to be done. It has to be written out. You have, it has to be performed. Uh, one in particular, I had written the piece, written it out, and was ready to go and had already began practicing it. And I, well, this one was one of the longer walks. I think it was four hours each way. So it was two 
So I was three hours into the walk, walk and I was walking through Greenwood Cemetery and I got to the grave of uh, Basquiat and I realized that I had left my score at home and that all the work from that week, I just didn't have it. So I had to perform in a couple of hours. And so I sat there at Basquiat's grave and I'm like, well, I got to write something and it has to be complete and I have to be able to play it in an hour. And so I wrote the, <laughs> I wrote the piece that was the Bensonhurst uh, piece. Wow. There's nothing like limitations to spur creativity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and that, that's also you know structure. I found uh, as an artist that I need structure to support the yeah. creative work, mm -hmm. and that it has to be a choice. So, yeah. and some structures are more fruitful than others. Yeah. Do you plan on doing the the walking project again? I did get a request for a proposal from curators in Paris. So perhaps mm -hmm. uh, in uh, April of, of 2019. Nice. So the real strong part about that project, I mean, I do like writing music and I do like walking, but the thing that really had a strong resonance for me were the silent walks in groups yeah. from yeah. that. So we've done since then uh, six other silent walks. The most recent one was in uh, Olomouc in the Czech Republic, mm -hmm. where we had 34 people walking for three hours down the Morava River. Nice. So we walked around the banks of the Morava, across the, the river, and then walked back. And we were really, really gifted because right at the halfway point of the walk, we formed a circle in this clearing. The, this uh, rainstorm came, <laughs> and we found the shelter in, under trees. So we, we stood in a circle under the trees and listened to the rain falling on the leaves. Wow. Yeah, it was really quite a magical moment. And there was something about being together with those 34 people. There was a connection there. It was unspoken, and everyone noticed it. Yeah. Just this one moment all together, and then it was gone. And we con continued. Well, luckily, the rain stopped, and we continued our walk. But there's something about these moments that happen where you can't really, you don't really know when they're going to come or how it's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and not everyone is, is, is ready for it or paying attention when it happens. Sometimes they fly by and people aren't, aren't, aren't there. Mm -hmm. uh, but we've done walks down Broadway, and it's been a very, very nice uh, format for being together with people. Yeah, I love that. It's the kind of thing where you never know what's going to happen, <laughs> just like with the rain. Yeah, exactly. Nice. And then, you know, finally, you've taken this work into corporate America and introduced it as a framework for creating more collaborative teams. Um, in your experience of doing that, what do you see teams need most to be more effective together? The most important part is that there is a level of trust in the group. And that is really hard to make happen. Mm -hmm. But what leadership has the opportunity to do is to understand and start thinking about the structure. And structures are something that are a little bit funny because most people will look to the quote-unquote boss for a structure. But what a lot of people forget is that a leader is not necessarily the boss and it's not necessarily in management. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So understanding just that, that, that thing that there are things that can be done in any situation right. that can affect the structure and the way people work together. Classic example is you know, just inviting people out for drinks outside the office. So you're working on a project at work. It could, it could be a mundane one. It could be a creative one. But just changing the situation, changing the, the scenery can go a long way. Mm -hmm. Understanding 
what can be done and what can't be done. Because in some structures or some situations, there's not a lot that can be done. And some individual members do then, where they do have agencies choosing the situations that they're going to be in. And that's something that sometimes can be gauged ahead of time and sometimes can't. Mm -hmm. So sometimes someone will take a job and they'll be on a development team and they won't really know what the actual situation is until you get into it. But what leaders can do is take a look at what can be done. Uh, I just heard, I forget which company it was, just said that there's unlimited time off. Hmm. Yeah, so they give the teams the deliverables, and then they say, well, just get it done. And and so then they're uh, – and that was supported by, I think, upper management. Mm-hmm. And then another one was that uh, there was a, a team here in New York where they gave unlimited vacation. Yeah. And then we're allowed to use vacation time to do training that was outside their area of expertise. Mm, that's generous. Yeah, that was another thing. You know, startup companies and uh, some of the entrepreneurial companies have some little more flexibility because it's usually not until you have investors or owners that are expecting, you know, quarterly returns or you know, return on investment or are looking at a stock price where the, then the math sort of changes on what's possible. Yeah. You're, you're reminding me, I, I hadn't thought about this in a while, but I went from working for one organization that had very generous, I think I had four weeks a year yeah. of vac- you know, paid vacation, right. um, but they counted it down to the you know quarter of an hour kind of thing. And then I went to work for another organization where I remember asking my boss, what's the, the time off? And she said, well, you know, about two weeks, but I trust you. And I believe in, you know, we are all working really hard. We're often working extra hours. And so if you need time, just tell me and you take it. And what you said in the very beginning about, you know, what teams need is that trust. And it's little tiny things like that that indicate trust because I felt like she was respecting me. She was treating me like an adult. She knew I wasn't going to abuse it. And it gave me that sense of freedom that allowed me, I think, to be much more um, invested in the work I was doing there and the people I was doing it with. Mm. Yeah. So very small thing. And a lot of these things aren't obvious either. Right. And so what would you advise someone who's listening who wants to bring some of that, uh, some of those ideas or to get that conversation started with their own team? Well, the first thing is, uh, this gets back to how you direct the attention. Mm-hmm. If someone's looking to improve something, the one mistake that I've seen a lot of people make is they'll get into the personalities. So they mm-hmm. don't like this person or they don't like that person. Yeah. Uh, and one of the reasons I look at situation a lot is oftentimes a given situation, there are predictable outcomes. You know, over time, most people react in a predictable manner in given situations. So to take a step back and look at what the actual situation is and see if there's anything that is possible that can be done. Mm -hmm. Uh, We often get tripped up by the things that we can't do and focusing on, well, you know, we can't do X, Y, and Z um, while we neglect what we can do. Most people are employees. Most people don't have a say in, you know, hiring and firing and most people can't decide on structure or a lot of those things, but there is still, even within that, uh, even just, you know, having a conversation instead of doing it over email or taking the time to, you know, have a lunch can make a big difference. Mm -hmm. 
especially if that's a practice that's done over the long term. Yes. Yeah, it can't just be um, sporadic or when there's a problem or, you know, um, something that needs to be um, built into the culture yeah. to be effective. Well, thank you for giving us this uh, sort of broad brush stroke of, of all these very interesting contributions that you're making both to music and to corporate America and all points in between. Especially, you know, something like music we think of as active and sound and, and whatnot, that, that it's also an avenue to stillness and contemplation and, um, and can serve as a framework for helping people to work better together. So um, thank you for the, the work you do. Thank you. I want to ask you a wrap-up question that I ask all of my guests, and I'm going to wave a magic wand, and you get a three-week vacation on Introvert Island, but you can only take three books with you. What would you take with you and why? I, <laughs> I, I've always wanted to go through Robert Kerr's The Power Broker, mm -hmm. and I've just never managed it. But if I had three weeks off, I probably would get through it. Yep. Uh, but that would probably, can I take audiobooks? Or, no, it has to be an actual book. You know, nobody's um, ever asked me about audiobooks, but I suppose if it's a single audiobook, we could do that. Yeah, if, I, if, I could do, <laughs> if I could do the power book on an audiobook, I would sit and listen to that, especially yeah. if Robert Carroll were reading it. Um, one of the things about that, uh, him is uh, Robert Moses in particular, and Carroll really looks at this really well, is uh, Moses really read the situation of power in New York really well. Mm-hmm. And so understood what he was one person who looked at the current situation and found ways to get things done outside of what, you know, he kind of built his own situation and organizational structures outside of the existing way that things were done, mm -hmm. uh, which is a tremendous uh, achievement in and of itself. Yeah. So that that's one that I, that I would like to read. Um, I still get a lot out of Agnes Martin's writings. She's got a, book. It's out of print now, but Agnes Martin was a uh, monochrome painter who lived out in the desert. Mm -hmm. And then she writes these very, very concise uh, looks uh, at making art. So I'd pro if, I, if I had three weeks, I would probably spend some time with that. Mm -hmm. And then the third one, The Complete Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I mean... If I'm reading about Robert Moses, then I would I would need to break that up with some Bill Watterson. And I, they're just so much fun, and they're beautiful comic strips, and they really get to visually, but also he handles some pretty heavy heavy topics very concisely and very clearly, and they're just also a lot of fun. Those would be my three. Awesome. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Well, Craig, what's the best way for people to connect with you and learn more about your projects and your music? And part two to that is I know you've got a, a project coming up called Creating Music Together. That's a retreat that you're hosting in 2019. So if you could tell us where, how we can learn more about that as well, um, that would be great. Yeah. So Creating Music Together is a uh, seven days of silence, uh, making music, singing each other's music, and preparing and sharing meals together. Mm -hmm. It will take place in Tepoztlan, Mexico, which is an old Aztec town. There's still, there's a rebuilt Aztec pyramid there, and it is at one of the intersections of the magnetic lines of the earth. Wow. So beautiful place. It, yeah. It's in a former monasteries and a single room with private bath, or you can offer a shared, shared room with private bath option. And that's being done through Music for Contemplation, so www.mufo.info. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Uh, move forward at info. Uh, also at the Music for Contemplation site are announcements about concerts. We do have a mailing list for that. And then I also do a, I have a website called onfoot.org where you can learn about the uh, Onfoot Brooklyn Project, Silent Walks, and also upcoming performances of uh, Trumpet Clouds, which is for 12 trumpets outdoors, mm-hmm. and Trumpet City, which is for 40 or more trumpets performing outdoors. And Ooh. that's at onfoot.org. Great. And I send out about one email every month. I usually write something uh, for every email, and people tend to know what I've been writing, and you can read some of the past writings in the past. I'll talk about making music or a project that's coming out, but also some of the ideas that we've talked about, about how to do things together, uh, and a little bit about contemplation and silence as well. Nice. Excellent. Well, I will make sure that there are links to all of those things on the episode webpage um, so that people can follow up and, and learn more. And just one point about the creating music together, if I understand right, it's you don't have to be a musician to attend, correct? No, we found the best combination is a combination of trained musicians who want to uh, examine some of their own assumptions. Mm-hmm. And maybe they might be blocked or they want to begin again as well as absolute beginners. So on the past retreat, we had five women who had never written a piece of music before, Mm -hmm. two of which had no musical training. Okay. And there are introductory exercises, not just for directing the attention, but also for singing together. And then everybody writes a piece of music and everyone plays everyone else's music. So our orientation there is to support each other. So the trained musician's job then is to support the newcomers in expressing what it is that they're hearing. Mm -hmm. And the beginners, one of their roles is to support the trained musicians in letting go of some of their uh, fixed ideas or preconceived notions about how things quote unquote should go. Yes, I love it. (laughs) And that combination has been very effective. Oh, that sounds amazing. That sounds great. So, well, thank you so much, Craig, for um, for sharing all of that with us. And again, for the work you do and um, best wishes as you embark on all of these new projects and and uh, and keep putting out this message into the world. So thank you. Thank you very much, Beth. I'm very glad to be here. I want to share a couple of my takeaways, but first, thank you so much for listening. Remember to visit my website at theintrovertentrepreneur.com slash podcast for links to Craig's websites about his various projects. If you would like to connect with me, I welcome your emails at beth at theintrovertentrepreneur.com, or you can use the short contact form on my website at theintrovertentrepreneur.com. If you enjoy this content, please consider leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues. The two biggest messages I took away from the conversation with Craig were the importance of questioning assumptions and being mindful of the little things. Just because something's quote-unquote always been done this way, or it's the way your teachers or mentors taught you, it doesn't mean that you can't challenge it. It took me a couple of years into my coaching career to realize that we learn the rules so that we know how, when, and why to break the rules. The rules are always useful in that they define the sandbox we're playing in and help us adhere to certain professional and ethical standards. But there's always room to scrutinize and question the rules. That willingness is what leads to greater innovation and creativity. 
and mindfulness, being present in the moment and really paying attention to what's around and inside of you, is part of nurturing that creativity and keeping you from just sleepwalking through your work and your life. Mindfulness isn't just some woo-woo hippie thing. It's a powerful practice that can energize your spirit and keep you in a growth mindset. Thank you so much for joining me and Craig, and we both hope you took something useful away for your life and your business. As always, a big thank you to Paul Nessing, my podcast producer. This is Beth Below of The Introvert Entrepreneur. It has been a wonderful pleasure spending this time with you. And until we meet again, remember that success is an inside job. <laughs>